Welcome back to Supreme Myths. Boy, am I excited today. Uh, my guest today is Gabe Roth, who happens to be the executive director of one of the most important organizations dealing with the judiciary in the United States called Fix the Court. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably are familiar with Fix the Court from Twitter or other places. Uh, Gabe is a graduate of Washington University. He received a master's in journalism from Northwestern, which I think has one of the top journalism schools in the country is my understanding. Um, and he, he's been a journalist, and now he is the executive director of this organization. So why don't you tell us what got you into Fix the Court, what, 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 what's your passion for this, and why you started this? Sure, yeah. So as you pointed out, I'm not a lawyer by trade. Uh, I went to journalism school for grad school and uh, was working in local news in, in Jacksonville, Florida, not really loving it, but got offered a job up in D.C. doing local news and quickly realized that I cared much more about the politics of the day than, you know, whatever random murder led the right. five o'clock show. Right. So uh, worked in political consulting in, in D.C. And one of my first clients was an organization that was representing some of the Gitmo detainees that were suing for their habeas rights in federal court. And the case went to the Supreme Court. And so, you know, three months into this new job, I'm standing in a blizzard on the Supreme Court steps in between, you know, the habeas attorneys and Nina Totenberg setting up for this uh, 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 press conference. And I just, I sort of, I, I got hooked on it. And, and my background in broadcast journalism was such that, you know, I couldn't go into the argument. I wasn't going to stand in line and I couldn't watch the argument. So I just got really interested in sort of like, not necessarily, you know, who, the, the wins and the losses on all the legal issues, but some of the more institutional issues that I thought were really, and still are, antiquated. So when did you start the organization? So I, yeah, I didn't actually start the organization right away. So that was in 07, the, was the Boumediene case. Boumediene yes. Al Oda was uh, argued, at, I think, December 5th, 2007. You mean, just for the just for the sophisticated folks listening to this, the Boumediene case is the one where the Supreme Court, in theory, gave Guantanamo Bay detainees habeas corpus rights, but in practice, pretty much didn't. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a good summary of it. Yeah. Um, yes, it was like we our side won the case, and it was like, did, but did we really? You're right. Um, and so I, I did consulting for another five or six, uh, no, seven years after that in in New York, D.C., Chicago, and um, again, it just so happened that in 2012, I, I was working with some same-sex marriage plaintiffs and some litigants in the voting rights cases, some of the Section Two and Section Five voting rights. Litigants, and they were all scattered across the country. We had same-sex couples in California and Maine, voting rights plaintiffs in California or in Texas, and they're all like, "We want to watch our case on the Supreme, you know, when it when it's argued <laughs> at the Supreme Court on C-SPAN four. And I'm like, "That's not a thing." <laughs> so what I did was start something called the Coalition for Court Transparency in 2012, and that was this group of, I mean, we had you know the the furthest right groups, the furthest less left groups, everyone in the middle. We had all the big uh, media groups like uh, Reporters Committee and radio, television, digital news directors, newspapers groups, uh, just trying to get cameras in the Supreme Court. It's a single issue group. And I did events. I did an event with Ken Starr at the at the National Press Club and one with Chief Justice O'Connor of the Ohio Supreme Court. Um, and you know, just quickly realized that it wasn't just this one issue of cameras in the Supreme Court that made the court so uh, uh, opaque and unaccountable. It's the fact that obviously they serve for life and we don't know about their recusals and ethics and all the things that became fix the court so you know the coalition for court transparency only lasted a year or two but by 2014 i was able to secure some funding to start 
my own group. And, and, and that's what I did and I've been doing it now eight years. So um, I have a, a out of left field question um, that just hit me. And as people who listen to this podcast sure. know, I do give rough roadmaps before we start, but then often we go into other places. When you say you got funding, I'm not meaning to put you on the sure. spot here. Um, no, of course. With all Sheldon Whitehouse's, you know, yelling and screaming, I think justifiably about the dark money in politics and the dark money behind the Federalist Society and all of that. Um, are you allowed to tell us who funds your organization? Yeah, uh, we, we got money. I was actually, uh, well, cur- okay, so cur- so back in 2013, 2014, it was a group called the New Venture Fund. Mm-hmm. So the New Venture Fund is formed, I mean, it's, you know, mostly liberal groups. Though at the time that I got my first grant from them, they were also funding, you know, they were giving money to like the Daily Caller News Foundation. It was definitely right. a lot, um, you know, more across the board. And and a lot of it was environmental. And, and now it's more pro-democracy and good governance and has, I mean, frankly, has taken a more liberal direction. And that's one of the reasons that I no longer get funding from them. Um, my last grant from them was in 2019. And so um, in 2021, uh, applied for 501c3 status. And then since then, we've gotten money from um, a few foundations, the Hewlett Foundation being the, the big one, um, and a couple others that just, and so that that the Hewlett Foundation money just ran out, and we just got some new funding. And I'm not, I don't think I can announce that quite yet. But sure, it's enough funding to get us through it's through two grants, possibly three, and that'll last us last us hopefully till 2023. But, but yeah, we were, you know, I, I'm not, ashamed to say that's where we got the money. I mean, New Venture Fund funds a lot of great groups. They fund a lot, fund a lot of groups that I vehemently disagree about. But <laughs> uh, at the time, back in 2014, I mean, what did I know? Sure. Um, sure. And I'm going to, you know, a friend of mine told me about this this organization and I I, I did it. And then, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely gone on, you know, moved a little bit more to the left than I would like, but uh, don't have to worry about them anymore. And, and I'm able to do my own thing with my own board and my own funding. Oh, I'm glad I'm I'm glad you have it. So um, we're going to go through a whole host of issues involved that, that Fix the Court is involved in that I've been writing about for years. But just to give some perspective to this, in 2016, I did a symposium here at Georgia State called Invisible Justices. Um, Dahlia Lithwick was here. Adam Liptak was here. Robert Barnes was here. Robert Barnes is the um, Wall Street as the um, uh, sorry, the Washington Post reporter for the Supreme Court. Straight the Times, the Post, Slate. You were there, um, uh, and a bunch of really famous law professors. And we discussed a whole bunch of issues. And there's been like no progress on any of those issues. <laughs> and it's been seven years. Um, now, now there is live. I mean, there's been progress on some of the issues. Yeah, okay, we're going to talk about that. No, there, there have been. I, I overstated that. Um, so let's begin with what I think is the most obvious. And when I tell non-lawyers this or when I tell lawyers who don't know this, I've, I've never heard anybody put – this is one issue where no one's ever pushed back and yet we can't get it done. Every judge in the United States of America is bound by an ethics code except for the nine highest judges in our country. <laughs> yeah. Um, give, give some background on that, what you're doing about it, and uh, maybe some perspective on why this is an issue where there is bipartisan. I've never said this to anyone who said, ah, oh, we don't need that. <laughs> no one's ever said that to me. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really crazy. It's it's really unfortunate. And the code of conduct that's exists for, for lower judges um, has its roots, goes back more than 100 years. Um, and it's been changed and codified. And then the ABA came out with their own version of it. 
50 years ago. But basically, there's been some code that lower court judges have followed for you know most of the 20th century and all of the 21st century. Um, and every and state, and, code, and every state, George, state judge, and every has state, a yes, yeah. every state yeah. as, as well, yeah. and and every, uh, and and this is not something that is, um, you know, only in the United States as well, right? There, there, there are plenty of other democracies around the world that have codes of conduct. There are other professions that have codes <laughs> of conduct, right? right? Doctors, accountants, you know, you, right. you can name it. But the Supreme Court stands apart. In the, and what they, they they say is that it's a it's a constitutional issue. The code of conduct for U.S. judges was promulgated by lower court judges. Lower court judges have no say over the institutional uh, roles or functions or policies of the Supreme Court. So we, as Supreme Court justices, can't take our uh, uh, directions from the lower courts. And the low, the Supreme Court is special. It has different. Uh, what the, what the justices say is that we're special. We have different. Uh, 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 or, or a different body in that if there was a close recusal question, we're not going to recuse because we have a duty to sit because we're not fungible, right? There's currently, you know, if um, Clarence Thomas can't sit on a case, you can't bring back Justice Breyer, even though he's perfectly capable to come back, you can't bring back Justice Breyer uh, to sit. Um, so so we have a special uh, way about us. And, and so our, our, our setup is such that we can't abide by the same rules that the lower court judges abide by. And in practice, we follow this code of conduct. We, we promise we do, we don't sign anything. We don't, we don't bound, you know, want to say we are bound to it, but you know, if you ask Kennedy and Breyer and Roberts, and I've been able to ask them all via intermediaries, they say, Oh no, we follow it. We consult it, but there, there's really no, I don't trust them. What just because they say it, like they need to actually be bound to follow it or formally agree in writing that they have that they will follow the code or will promulgate their own code that they write and then follow. I, so I've always thought that we'll get we'll get to recusal in a minute because it's a separate question. But I've always thought the argument we can't recuse ourselves because then we wouldn't be a full court and wouldn't be able to implement the rule of law. So we're going to violate the rule of law by sitting on a case that we shouldn't sit on. Obviously, the court itself or Congress could come up with a solution um, for having, if a justice is recused for maybe having a lottery for a different judge or just decide the case with eight judges. I mean, you know, which happens all the time. All the time. Two, they're about, they're not, maybe at the merit, at the merit stage, you know, it only happens a couple times, but I mean, the justice is only here, 60 or 70 cases. So, you know, only a couple of them will there be a recusal. But on an average year, there are 200 recusals right. from the justices every term. The term that just started the beginning, the first Monday in October, there's already been, as of today, which is October 19th, 40 recusals, 40 times. And frankly, there should have been 41 because I think Justice Jackson missed one. But this <laughs> is a common occurrence and this idea that you know we 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 have we're a different body we have different rules we have different responsibilities under the constitution and because of that we can't have a code is an argument that completely falls flat yeah and and let's be clear uh, the justices on both sides uh, the conservatives talk to the federal society in ways that I find offensive. The liberals talk to the American Constitution Society in ways that I find offensive. Um, Justice Alito seems to love going around the world and and talking smack about various things. Um, they do, in fact, accept gifts. They do, in fact, go on boondoggles. Famously, Thomas and Scalia went to two Koch brother boondoggles. And they didn't go to give and talk and leave. They went there to hang out 
yep. while the Koch brothers were having like political conversations about things. Really, and this was back in mid two thousands, but still. Um, and let's just be—I want to be one hundred percent clear for the audience: there is no binding rule against the justices doing that kind of thing. Not, not nothing that nothing that, that that they would say is binding on us, and there's nothing we can do about it. And there's no uh, consequences either, right? If you're a right. lower court judge and you go to a uber liberal or uber conservative retreat, I, as a member of the public, you, anyone watching this, could file a complaint against a Judge Smith that says, you know, we believe that you are violating the code of conduct, violating your oath, what have you. And then that that complaint would be adjudicated by other judges, which, again, is not perfect, but it's better than nothing. And if I don't like the result, I can appeal, right? Like there, there's all these different steps. And if the judge is found to have violated the code, there are punishments. And the punishments don't ever fit the crime, really. <laughs> I mean, it's like censure or right. reprimand. But like they're not happening that frequently. So if you are a judge who is censured, it actually kind of is a big deal. I mean, I had a, I filed a complaint against a judge um, because he was – so he had a very Abe Fortas-like uh, contract where he was just like – he was a former uh, judge in uh, a county attorney in Charleston and his severance agreement included a line that says like, we're going to come to you for advice from time to time. Jeez. Like you can't do that. Right. No. Like you're not allowed to double dip. And no. so I filed a complaint and I got the dude to rewrite his, you know, he didn't have to resign over it. Like Fortis did because Abe Fortis had a similar uh, issue in the sixties, but you know, he rewrote his complaint. Uh, he rewrote his contract. He said he was sorry. And then, right, and like that, that is a consequence. That is a consequence of doing something unethical, which is signing a contract that implies double dipping. If, if there was a Supreme Court justice, maybe there was, you know, the court of public opinion, like with Fortas and his resignation in the late 60s, but there's really no, and especially, and I really want to hammer this, the Supreme Court used to feel shame about these sorts of things, <laughs> right? If we had the Fortas situation nowadays, if we had the, the Dawson we situation, but at the Supreme Court, Dawson's the guy from uh, Charleston I was referring to, they wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't care. They'd say F you to the public, F you to the media and continue on their job as if there was no uh, recourse or reprimand because there, there really isn't. And, and the, the court of public opinion is not something that a majority of justices, frankly, care about right now. Well, here are some facts to support your position. And these facts go back 22 years, but I think it's gotten worse since then, not better. So uh, Bush versus Gore is pending in the lower courts. No one knows what's going to happen. Florida wants more time for the recount. We don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do. At that very moment in time, Ginny Thomas is making money from the Heritage Foundation, trying helping them place heritage types and federal society types in the Bush administration coming up that hasn't even been elected yet because Bush versus Gore hasn't been decided yet. So while his wife is finding jobs for people, for George Bush— and getting compensated for playing that role, Justice Thomas sits on Bush versus Gore. And Correct. to me, that's an obvious case. I've always said that just judges and justices should not recuse because of their spouse's activities as a general proposition. That wouldn't be good for women because of our society, but wouldn't be good for any spouses and not a good idea unless there's a financial issue involved. And here she was getting paid by Heritage to place people in the administration that didn't exist, and then he gets right. to decide if it's even going to exist. Clear-cut case for recusal? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that, that goes without saying. And there, there's, you know, we're trying to figure out if Ginny Thomas was paid to 
uh, foment the insurrection, right? We don't know today, right? Right. Right. Today, yeah. If she was paid, right? Um, we don't know the extent to which clients are using, you know, Jane Roberts's services or Jesse Barrett's services or Patrick Jackson's services to win favor before the justices. So this will be out by the time your podcast comes out. Right. But um, we have an exclusive, I think, coming out on the 20th uh, that it's fixed the court and some other groups are trying to get Congress to rewrite the uh, financial disclosure rules. So anybody who pays a justice's or judge's spouse more than $5,000 in a year, that needs to go on the financial disclosure report. I thought- um, doesn't mean that anyone needs to recuse necessarily, but if you're a- a, 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 you know, a fortune 500 company and you're, you know, and, and, and Jesse Barrett is, is, uh, your lawyer. I'd, I'd frankly like to know that because you're, if you're a partner, if you're Jesse Barrett and you're making a lot of money from Walmart and I would like to know, frankly, because right now, all I know is that Jesse Barrett works at South bank legal. I don't know who his clients are. I don't necessarily believe that I need a recusal, but in a partnership agreement, you're making a ton of money based on who your clients are. So similarly, whether, you know, and, and, and Patrick Jackson is, is making money off of uh, consulting on medical malpractice cases, I think, you know, and there's 1400 lower court judges that have spouses that are making money. So, you know, um, I thought Supreme I, Court I think, justices did. I thought judges had to report their wives income, spouses. Income. They had Excuse to me, spouses income. Um, yes, they have to report that the source of their income. Yeah. They have to report the source, but not the amount. Oh, I see. I see. And not who is, right? So if I'm Liberty Consulting, like Ginny Thomas is, and I am um, being paid by Frank Gaffney at a time that Frank Gaffney is pushing the Muslim ban before the Supreme Court, I don't have to tell the public, Clarence Thomas doesn't have to tell the public that that's where Ginny money is coming from. All he has to write is Ginny Thomas, Liberty Consulting, and then that's it. I would like to know who Liberty Consulting's clients are because in the sure. past, Liberty Consulting's clients have had cases before the Supreme Court. And that's, you know, again, I don't think we're asking for anything crazy here. And every recusal decision will still be up to the justices, probably, though we're still we're working on some language to fix that as well. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is not one of the $5,000 thing. It's not one of our biggest things. It's just, you know, recency bias. This sure. is literally, I mean, the reporter who's writing the article about it is literally texting me right. as we speak. Right, right. So, um, you know, uh, uh, sorry, uh, sorry about that there. But I, I do think no. that there are ways to sort of draw out sure. and help the public understand some of the implications of potential spousal conflicts of interest, right? If David Cole, who's the head of the ACLU, if he leaves the ACLU and goes to work at Gibson and Dunn and Gibson and Dunn's number one client um, is someone that his wife, Nina Pillar, adheres on the DC circuit, I would like to know that, right? So I think that any well, we had that situation. The judges we, we, and justices should be uh, 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 governed by financial disclosure rules. I mean, we had that situation. Um, Judge Reinhardt on the Ninth Circuit's wife was the head of the um, ACLU in California yep. for a very long time, and God knows Reinhardt heard a lot of cases. Um, I want to take a minute here, Gabe, because um, I, I I was so frustrated in 2012 um, on this recusal issue because. And I because Kagan didn't recuse from Obamacare? Justice Kagan. So I, I want to put people in Justice Kagan's chair for a minute. Justice Kagan is the Solicitor General of the United States. So for those who don't know, the Solicitor General's office represents the United States government in cases in front of the Supreme Court and occasionally in the lower courts. 
On the day that Obamacare was passed, she was the Assistant General of the United States under President Obama. On the day it was passed, uh, she sent a note to Lawrence Tribe, who in 2012 was the most important constitutional law professor in the United States. He's not today, but he was in 2012. And I think he was an informal advisor to the Obama administration as well. And she says, Lawrence, great news, we have the votes. Nothing wrong with that, but we have the votes, it's going to pass. At which point, Neil Cattell, her deputy, I believe, uh, says that we need to have a meeting because there's going to be lawsuits filed tomorrow against Obamacare, which there were in Florida. Um, Do you want this office involved in the lower courts or not? Because it usually doesn't, but sometimes it does. To which Kagan said something like, we'll talk or, or, or that's enough for now or something. And then what happened is the Solicitor General's office did represent the United States in the lower courts. Neil Cattell argued, I believe, the 11th Circuit case on Obamacare that actually went to the Supreme Court. And when Kagan became Supreme Court justice, she recused herself from over 250 cases that her office had worked on, including a huge affirmative action case everyone was paying attention to, and a huge immigration case everybody was paying attention to. But she did not recuse from the Obamacare case. Her excuse was, and and there was a formal motion for her to recuse, which she never responded to. Her testimony in Congress when she was confirmed, I believe she said that she had, or she said at some point in front of Congress, I never talked about the case. I drew a Chinese, this may be a politically incorrect statement now, but a Chinese wall around myself. Um, and I, and I, let, you know, I, I let my deputy do everything. I never heard anything. I stayed away. There's a rule not binding on the Supreme Court, but I think they say they got it by it, is binding on every other judge in the United States, federal, that you can't hear a case you served as the lawyer on in the lower courts. Obviously. No, it's, that's supposed to be binding on – I mean it's, it's a federal law that includes the justices, right? right. The law was written – I mean it's been written – and rewritten a hundred times since the since the early 19th century, but it included the justices in the 70s, right? So 28 USC 455 B, that's the law. You can look it up. Says, yeah, you can't participate in a case in w- that you've part- previously participated in. And so, though lower court judges, again, you can file a complaint, you can push a judge off of a case if there's a reason to do so. You can't do so at the Supreme Court. Though I would would. Uh, caution that, you know, there is a bill in Congress right now that passed committee that would allow for litigants to file a recusal motion to the entire court vis-a-vis one of the justices participation in the case. In other words, if you are the state of Florida or to use a more recent case, if you are Benny Thompson, the head of the January 6th committee, and you believe that Clarence Thomas, sorry, there's a helicopter. We That's okay. A war, a war zone in, in central Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> If you're Benny Thompson and and you believe that Clarence Thomas should not participate in the January 6th petition case, then you could file a a recusal motion, and then that motion would be referred to the entire court. Currently, each justice has the ability to, as you point out, decide whether or not they can recuse, which is ridiculous. The, 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 The rule should be that there should be some outside body, which we're never going to be able to create. So at the very least, the justice's peers should help make that decision for them in those sorts of cases. And I think, yes, in the Florida case, you can look, this, this will probably be abused, but the assholes who abuse it will be smacked down very quickly. Right. And issues like the Obamacare case or the, uh, the Florida uh, suing um, 
suing, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, the Obamacare case or the January 6th case, those ca those situations, to your point, yes, Kagan should have recused, but if not, at the very least, there should have been a motion filed that Kagan herself wasn't deciding. And that, to me, is what's like, you can't be a judge in your own case. That's been around <laughs> since freaking Hammurabi. And yet Kagan was a, ju a judge in her own case in terms of the recusal motion. And yeah, I've, I've been no... Um, uh, I think that's the only time that I've been on and uh, mentioned positively in the National Review was uh, talking <laughs> about my. I wrote a, I wrote a piece for the National Review on that, but that was before the National Review really went off off the rails, in my opinion. Um, no comment. What one? Fair enough. One thing about Kagan, a couple of things. Um, she didn't write. She didn't respond to the motion, which is inexcusable. Yeah. In fact, in the history of the Supreme Court, I believe there were three, maybe four memos ever written by a justice. Yes. Uh, and I think Scalia may have written two, one or two yeah, of them. Yeah, I think uh, Rank, the ones that I can recall are Laird v. Tatum yep, and Rehnquist, by yeah. Rehnquist, yeah. the uh, Microsoft case yeah. by Rehnquist, and yeah. then the Cheney one by Scalia. Right. And that's it. And that's impossible, that's right? How can there be three written memos in history? Um, the other thing I want to say, what, the other thing I want to say is um, I was so disappointed in 2012 because I did not, there were some close recusal questions. There were, there were close calls. Frankly, Scalia recused himself because he made a snide commenting. There was a case coming to the Supreme Court about the words under God and the Pledge of Allegiance. At, a, at some kind of university or other public function, Scalia made a snide comment about how he felt about the case. Maybe he should have recused. I could have lived with the memo saying, I did say that. I haven't seen the briefs. My mind is open. It was just an off-the-cuff remark. We can debate that. The Kagan thing was not debatable. <laughs> Her office worked on the case. But what's really not debatable is why did she pick that one case and only that one case as Solicitor General to, to not have any participation in? What was going through her brain when she said to Neil Cattell, don't tell me, don't tell me? We know she knew she was going to be nominated or had a good chance of being nominated, and she wanted to rule on it. It's absolutely insane. And liberals didn't care. Progressives didn't care. That's why I called my, my article on this in Slate a liberal's lament. It's not that I wanted her to recuse herself. It's that, but one, but one, one more thing about that law you were pointing out. I think Justice Roberts, I could be wrong, but I think Justice Roberts and the court would take the position that law is not binding on them, that Congress can't bind them. That Congress cannot do that. Congress doesn't have the power to tell the court when they can and cannot sit as a matter of separation of powers. I'm pretty sure that's his position. They, they might yeah. follow it voluntarily, but it's not yeah. binding. Yeah, that, well, exactly. That's, that's the... Um... I think the 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 clearest. I mean, there's been. I mean, look, there have been several cases that have talked about, you know, recusal. There's the Caperton case. There's the Lilleberg right. case. I can never pronounce that correctly. Um, but you know, to me, what really sort of sets this apart in terms of you know binding, not binding, is you know there's um, in 1991, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote a memo talking about the Ethics Reform Act and the gift requirements under that, that, you know, it was reforming, it was part of, it was initially the Ethics and Government Act of 78, which required financial disclosures and some gift rules. And then there was the Ethics Reform Act, which updated that in 1989. And that went into effect in 1991. And Rehnquist writes this memo saying, we're not going to say whether or not we believe this to be constitutional or right. whether it could be applied to the justices, but out of the goodness of our hearts, right. our, our deeply ethical hearts, <laughs> we're going to follow the strictures of the gift and travel rules. They still say the that. That's still their position. 
And that is still exactly it is it is, it is voluntary. If you look at Chief Justice Roberts's 2011 year end report right. about the code of conduct, it's voluntary. We're doing it. Out of the, we're doing it because we're good ethical lawyers, good ethical judges. And, and that's what we want. That's the so, image that we want. So but, to be so to be clear on this for people following along, and I'm going to be nonpartisan about it. If okay. we found out that, in fact, Leonard Leo had paid Clarence Thomas under the table with gifts and meals and that kind of thing for 25 years. And then we found out that the American Constitution Society has been taking Justice Sotomayor out for dinner and sending her on vacations for 10 or 15 years. Um, pure gifts, no quid pro quo, just pure gifts. Mm-hmm. There is nothing legally that could happen to either Sotomayor or Thomas, correct? Correct. Legally, no. I mean, I, I think that but it's not the, a high crime um, misdemeanor either. So I don't think no, it's not a high crime. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they could be impeached. I mean, you could be impeached for anything nowadays. Um, <laughs> right. All you need is a majority of the House. But um, I think and they, but they wouldn't be removed because you never get 67 right. senators. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there is a federal corruption statute, 18 U.S.C. 208, that is not applicable to the justices or the members of the judiciary, though that is something that we are looking at changing. There was a bill introduced earlier this year called the 21st Century Courts Act that would apply that statute to the federal judiciary, including the justices. Um, you know, under the under the McDonald standard, I mean, you know, when Bob McDonald was the governor of Virginia, I mean, he got all sorts of crazy gifts and nine nothing. The statute says nothing you can do about it. So just sort of taking the jurisprudence of the court and the lack of binding uh, uh statute in this area yeah there would be nothing you could do about them and and there's no there's never been any recourse or reprimand other than there's two right there's impeachment and there's public pressure and right. public pressure worked in in the 60s with with fortis it worked um uh with um uh, to try to get justice clark off because they uh nominated i think his son to be solicitor general or ag right. you know there's been ways to push justices off the court via be a be a public pressure, but again, that we, we shouldn't have to rely on that. But we should not exactly. We shouldn't have to rely on that, and that presumes shame, and there's no shame. Right. There was a moment. I'm, I'm going to leave the ethics code in a second, but there was a moment in time, and more than one. I'm I'm like three times your age, so throughout the '90s and 2000s, when I would raise this issue, people would. You're get, 120. <laughs> all right, I'm not three times. Huge news. Age. I'm not good at math. Um, there was a moment in time when I would say this in public that there's no binding ethics code. And A, people wouldn't believe it, or B, if they believed it, they kind of shrug, yeah, okay. Um, and the, thanks in large part to your organization and others. Um, now, whenever I say this in public, I get a lot of heads nodding, we know this, and how can this be, and this is insane. And as I said to you, I think right before we, we started taping, I have ne- so I know people who are against cameras in the court. I know people who are against some rules involving papers. We're going to talk about these issues in a second. I know people who even I, know, I even know people who are against formal recusal standards because of the problem of. I know no one, no one on the planet who's against the binding ethics code for the Supreme Court. How can this not be getting done? <laughs> um, I th- a few reasons. One yeah. is I think. Um, there's there's questions about and, and Lyle Denniston actually tweeted about this I earlier know. today. Yeah. Um, there's questions about whether Congress could force the justices to uh, apply one, either to 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 have the one that lower courts have have that apply right. to the justices, or even if Congress could um, uh, force the justices to write a code for themselves. And the most recent bill that passed 
the House Judiciary Committee, it would say the justices, you write a code of conduct for yourselves. Earlier versions said the Judicial Conference should write a code for everyone. And I, I didn't like that because, again, the lower court, higher court right. judges issue. Um, but, you know, it's called H.R. 7647, the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act. That would require the justices to write a code for themselves. And there's a question, can Congress and I, I think, look, I think the Congress can do whatever the hell they want when it comes to the Supreme Me Court, too. right? They can, <laughs> they can, they can tell the the court to mow its lawn, right? Yes. They can tell, they can provide funds to to for fencing. They they can provide funds for clerks. The only thing that Congress can't do is lower their salaries, right? If you look at the Article Three, it's you know they they shall receive for services a salary which shall not be diminished during their term of office. But I think the Supreme, you know, if Congress wanted to build the Supreme Court. And and put it out, you know, as as a, a a ship on the Potomac River, I think I think Congress could do that. Good idea. Right? And so, um, and so to me, yeah. Let, let, let's just cut through that real quick. There's one other thing yeah. Congress can't do. Congress can't make the Supreme Court decide a case in a way the Supreme Court doesn't want to decide the case. Yeah. That's they separation of powers. Um, yeah. But but so so some people don't know Lyle is one of the most senior. Maybe I think he's the senior Supreme he is Court currently. Yeah. A correspondent in the country. He's three. He's three times older than me. He's three. He's a great guy. I know him, and he asked. He asked a fair question. There is an incredibly easy answer to me. Congress could could constitutionally pass a law saying you have one, two, three years, pick the number, to write your own code. If you don't, we're cutting your budget by ninety percent. And that, that is that to me is yes, and that that to me is is the answer. Yeah. and and yeah. I I have been very. Um, you know, forthcoming within certain circles about how this is hasn't happened and it's it's bullshit and it's right. it's really um, lobbying by the justices, both Chief Justice Roberts himself, Jeff Manier, uh, his former uh, who's uh, Jeff Manier? Oh, who's Jeff Manier? He, sorry, his counsel. He's basically okay. his chief of staff. Okay, now it's a guy named uh, I think Bob Dow. Wait, the Chief Justice gets a chief of staff? Yes, and it's a statutory. It's you know okay. it's called the counsel to the Chief Justice, and he got he has a statutory, I didn't statutory know that. authority. To do all <laughs> I learned things. something. <laughs> yeah. Did you know there was an OLC at the Supreme Court? Office of Legal Counsel? You know, there's one at the DOJ, obviously. Yeah, yeah, well, I worked with it. Yeah, no, I didn't Supreme know that. Court too. Really? We'll get to that one. Um, so, yeah, they're pretty great. So, um, you know, the, the thing is that the Chief Justice, yeah, so they're lobbying against this. They don't want to do it. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to, you know, they, they believe that, well, A, if they're forced to have an ethics code that sort of implies that they're not being ethical to begin with. At least that's their view. <laughs> right. Uh, second, it's actually kind of, they, they believe it's kind of hard to write an ethics code, right? To have something that is, you know, not the same as what the lower courts have, but that's something that stands apart that, that, that applies to the justices. That's what I've, I've heard. That's been one of the arguments. I don't necessarily buy it. I mean, I've tried to write one myself and it, you know, took me a couple of days, but. Wait a minute, Gabe, you know, every state Supreme Court has a, every state exactly. Supreme Court. I mean, that's what. That's one of the one of the things I, I've I've been told. Um, and in terms of in, in terms of their budget, yes, it's it's the judiciary puts a ton of pressure. They have the judiciary has the most effective lobbying shop in D.C. They put a ton of pressure wow. on every time they want a supplemental money for X, they always get it. I can't think of a single time. Last year they didn't get the 112 million extra dollars for X, but they're getting it this year. Um, the, anytime they need any extra money, they get it. They their their budget increases more than you know. Five, six, seven, eight percent almost every year, even in a recession, there are incredibly effective lobbyists, and they have the ability of saying, like, if you don't do X, you know, the 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 
justice system of America will fall into a big, big puddle of muck and we won't be able to have be a beacon of democracy. And that's what they say. And they're very effective. And unfortunately, the people who work on the judiciary committees are either themselves former judiciary staffers right, or are weak. The people who work, not all, not everyone, but the, uh, there are enough people in the positions of power on the House and Senate Appropriations Committee who will just do whatever the judiciary tells them to. Because A, it's actually not the biggest line item, right? It's only only $9 billion a year, right? If you're on the, ju the Judiciary Appropriations Subcommittee, which also oversees like the FBI and 27 other important things, the judiciary is like, oh, you want to increase 5%? Great, let me move on. So that's right. sort of their attitude to, to, towards it. And they don't want to be pushing back because the judiciary does have, you know, it does need money to function. Um, but to your point, I think that, yes, hopefully over time we will get folks on the Judiciary Committee who are going, uh, sorry, on the Appropriations Committee that oversees the Judiciary to, to, to grow some balls and actually fight the Judiciary when they say they don't. And it's even worse than the Ethics Code, frankly. The Ethics Code is bad, but the Judiciary has not done enough to fix sexual harassment and right. misconduct policy. Right. If we're going to throw 90% of their budget out, let's do it on that, right? right? Let's do it on the lower, like the Supreme Court is nine humans and they have their flaws and they don't have an ethics code. And I have a whole organization around that. But, you know, the the the, the situation that clerks and judicial assistants and federal defenders are finding themselves in because of the awful workplace conduct policies in the lower courts, the fact that lower court judges are not are not a part of Title VII, that you can't sue a judge over discrimination, harassment or, or whistleblower issues, the, the fact that there's no national reporting, climate surveys, all these things that we need to, to make the workplace of the third branch for the 31,000 people who work there exemplary do not exist. That's frankly something that 90% of their budget should be cut. And it's really been disappointing that that hasn't been part of the discussion. Yeah, two points. Um, for originalists out there, um, the 1800 Congress closed the Supreme Court for a year. Now, I'm not suggesting okay. that Congress today could close the Supreme Court, but they absolutely have the power to condition behavior on budget requests. They just do. And and they should use it. The second thing is talking about the lower courts, I can't I can't hear that without once again espousing my utter consternation that um I clerked for the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. That courthouse is down the street from me. When the Eleventh Circuit sits on bank, they sit in Atlanta at this courthouse a few blocks from my law school. And um the men and women who work in that courthouse and the cafeteria and maintenance, all of the places, many of whom are African-American, are going to have to deal with the chief judge of the 11th Circuit who hired a law clerk who allegedly said, I hate black people, I hate all black people. And this, this Judge Pryor thing with this woman, Crystal Clanton, um, there was an investigation. Everyone agrees that investigation was not an investigation. They're trying to do another one now. Um, it is impossible for me to conceive that we would require people in that courthouse in Atlanta, Georgia, downtown, to have to abide by the whims of a chief judge who hired a law clerk knowing she said, I hate black people, I hate all black people. At least she hasn't denied it publicly. She said she hasn't remembered. Yeah. So, you know, you're right. It's a horrible situation. All right. Let me, ethics and recusal are really important. They're not the only things. Um, your, your tax dollars and my tax dollars fund the justices. Uh, papers. And as incredible as it sounds, my understanding is they still communicate 
via written memo, not email, which is really amazing. But I think that's true. Depends but, depends on the justice, depends okay. on the situation. Okay. But, but they, many they do. do email. But, but yes, they, they, they do still use memos. Yeah. Um, I'm not suggesting we should ever necessarily learn the pre-decision deliberations that are directly relevant to those kinds of cases. I'm not Except suggesting- their cert votes. You want their cert votes, Eric. I don't well, want their cert votes. I want more than their cert votes. I want their official damn papers because we paid for them. And- yeah. um, and in Justice O'Connor's case, for example, her rule, her she left. First of all, there's no, there should be one rule for all the papers. That's point A, right? There are, there's no rules for any of the papers. Point B, O'Connor said her papers can become public 50 years after the last justice she worked with resigns. So Thomas, she worked with Thomas. Thomas is our most senior justice. We get the papers 50 years after Thomas resigns, which is going to be at least 70 to 75 years after O'Connor resigned. That's insane. There are papers. Does this yeah. is this something fixed the court is at all concerned about? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> and so there is language that has been drafted by the House and the Senate um, to make Supreme Court papers like presidential papers with some privacy concerns written in there. Of right? course. So there there is draft language, and this is you know it's so. One of the, the, the biggest challenges that Fix the Court has, and I think any real um, uh, reform organization has that deals with Congress, right? Because theoretically, the justices could do all this on their own, right? They could put cameras in the courtroom. They could retire after 18 years. They could write an ethics code. They could recuse more regularly. They could tell the public when they're appearing in public. They could release their papers either contemporaneously or at least in a more reasonable time frame. They're not doing any of that. So because of that, you know, fools like us get to or have to <laughs> lobby Congress to do these sorts of things, right? right? So like so many other things, unfortunately, this is not a top priority of this Congress, despite the fact, and so like I said, so language was written, modeled after the President Re Presidential Records Act, which gives a 12-year time horizon between the time you leave an administration and the time you get records, right? So like, you know, the last day, I was able to start getting Bush records and Kavanaugh records and Gorsuch records, on the first day of the Biden administration, because there was 12 years from the end of the Bush administration right. until the start of the Biden administration. And so really, and you get the six month and there's actually like a six month window. So it's really like 12 and a half years and then COVID. But, you know, that's yeah. it's generally about 12 years. Yeah. So that's what we wanted for um, Supreme Court papers and language has been written. But of course, the staffers who have really care about this no longer work on Capitol Hill. The one in the House no longer works on Capitol Hill and the one in that's the Senate sad. no longer works on that's Capitol sad. Hill. So that's really been the biggest impediment. Um, I, I want to explain. To specifically that bill. And, and in general, I mean, you know, and this is probably going to bring up other issues, but we have a real problem with uh, uh, partisanship on these sorts of things in Congress right now. Because, you know, five years ago, you know, four years ago, I helped co-write a bill with a Republican staffer and a Democratic staffer requiring the justices to have a, a code of conduct. Now, the Republicans view any bills of that deal with the policy or the, the institutional policies of the court as an attack on the court. Never mind that Supreme Court term limits have been talked about since the freaking anti-federalist papers 200 plus <laughs> years ago, or that right. a code of conduct has been talked about since, um, you know, Judge Kenesaw Mountain Landis and Chief Justice Taft had a conversation about it in the <laughs> 1920s. Like they believe, they see, they think it's a, everything is an attack on Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito or Barrett or whoever when it's not. And you know, if if 
they're and they're going after me for saying that it is, which is just like you know, beyond like it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. You know, um, I, I might have personal views, you might have personal views, but it's not like we're coming and saying like, oh, only apply these to Clarence Thomas. Right. No, these rules right. should apply to every single justice in the to the future, and also they should apply to the fourteen hundred other. Federal, it's 1,400 because it's 870 Article Three judges and then another like 500 plus senior judges, right? right? So it's like 1,400. And then with bankruptcy and, and, and magistrate who are in Article One, it's like 2,400. But these sorts of rules should also apply to the 2,400 other judges, right? So it's not nine individuals that we're attacking. It's we want best practices and modern governance for the entire freaking branch. Two reactions. I, I do want to explain why, paper, one, why papers are so important. And I would build the argument this way. I hope everybody listening to this would agree that there's an historical interest in how the Supreme Court operates. There's, 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 there's historians, political scientists, and law professors should have information about the history of how the Supreme Court makes this decision. So, for example, when Justice Powell's papers became public, and he did them pretty quickly, I think, I think somewhere in there it shows that Chief Justice Rehnquist almost never voted to hear a case involving civil rights. Almost never. Because Powell's papers actually had the cert votes, which we don't get mm -hmm. as a matter of course. Now, that's an interesting fact. Like, if I'm going to write the history yep. of either Justice Rehnquist, who's a major public sure. figure, or the Supreme Court, the fact that he never, ever, ever voted to hear a civil rights case, I don't, I don't mean zero, but I mean just about never, sure. is an important fact. And, and we should understand how this... I want to learn more about Dred Scott. I want to learn more about Lochner. I want to learn more about Bush versus Gore and so on and so forth. We may or may not get the papers relevant to those cases, and that's insane. I want to respond to um, – you said you, you did a wonderful list of things the court should do itself but won't, like its own code of conduct, its own recusal rules, its own gift rules, uh, its own paper rules, et cetera. And this gives me the chance to say what I've yelled twice in the last – I've given two talks in the last 24 hours to a bunch of people. And I end both of those talks this way. Gabe, I can tell you why they don't do those things. I can tell you why they don't do the right thing. It's not complicated. Never – I'm sorry I'm getting emotional. It's my podcast. I'm allowed. Never, ever, ever in a democracy give a government official largely unrevealable power for life. Yeah. What a stupid idea. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> and no other country in the world that's a democracy does it. There's no other democracy yep. in the world that says, here's a lot of power, and guess what? You have it for the rest of your life. Correct. <laughs> it's insane. So why would they do that? I mean, that corrupts, and I don't mean corrupts like taking bribes, but that corrupts one's character almost no matter what. Yeah, it warps. It, yeah, yeah, warps yeah. your view of the world. It warps your self-importance in ways that are unhealthy to a democracy. Absolutely, hundred percent. Well, we, you and I agree on that, among other things. Um, what do we disagree on besides cert votes? Okay, now we're going. To, I'm going right there. So, it takes four votes on the Supreme Court to grant cert in a case, and we never know. The Supreme Court does not tell us which justices voted to hear which case. This is less of a problem today when we know exactly how every justice is going to vote in every important case. But it wasn't always thus. and We didn't know how Kennedy was always going to vote. We didn't know how O'Connor was going to vote. We didn't know how Souter was going to vote. We didn't know how White was going to vote. We didn't know how Blackman was going to vote on occasion. Um, that's all gone now. But hopefully we might return to a day where we have justices who we can't predict in big political cases. But even in the non-political cases, the cases you and I don't care about, even in those cases, would the, the, the parties care a lot about it? Knowing who voted to grant cert 
would provide a lot of helpful information to the lawyers in briefing the case. It would provide information to the public. They get 2,500 or so cert petitions a year and grant like 80 now or 85 or 75 or so. Uh, 55 and 70. That's crazy. Yeah. It used to be like 800 back in like the 20s with no law. But anyway, um, the, the, the cases they decide to hear are incredibly important and, and why they decide to hear them. So, for example, this term, there's a case involving a, wed, a website wedding designer who didn't want to do a creative. Yes. Yeah, who didn't want to do a design for a uh, same-sex marriage. There's only free speech issues in the case. There's no religion issues. There were religion issues in the lower court, but the court granted cert just on the free speech issues. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know who did that. Hmm. that if, I was, if I was writing about that case, that's important information. Why do we keep that information secret? I don't, what, what is your argument for keeping that information secret? I, I think there are... Because if it was just saying, okay, you know, Kagan voted for cert, I, I don't know if that would be enough. I'd, I'd want to know more. I personally want to know more. Right. If there was a if there was a way to say, you know, Kagan voted for cert on X or, you know, Alito voted for cert on question one, but not question two. And Sotomayor voted for cert on both questions. It just it sort of raises more questions than answers for me. And again, I think that an organization like mine, you sort of have to pick and choose. Of course. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I definitely see arguments in favor of saying, you know, the court in the orders list that come out each each week saying, you know, the petition granted, you know, 303 creative versus, I don't right. know who they're suing, Colorado, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the, these following four justices are the ones that granted cert. Like, what about Akilah Lamar's argument, um, which I is the second best, but I, I really can't imagine any negative response to this. All right. Don't do it as, as it's going on, as it's happening, because maybe that, mm. but at the end of every term, just reveal. I mean, just, you know, why not? The term's over, case is decided. Reveal who decided to vote. We sh- so here's the thing. Um, I've followed Kennedy's career and O'Connor's career very closely because both of them, to win in the Supreme Court in a contested con law case from 1988 to 2018, you had to have one of those two on your side, otherwise you couldn't win if it was a sure. contested case, um, with two exceptions, I think three exceptions to that, only three exceptions, all those years. So those two are the, now they're being wiped out by the Supreme Court. Their legacies are being wiped out. That's a conversation for a different day. I would like to know, to evaluate their careers and, and write something scholarly and, and interesting and important about Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy. Unless you know their cert votes, it's a partial it's a partial history. That's true. Yeah, I think yeah, I think there's less harm knowing after the fact. Absolutely. I think that, you know, and that's partially part of, you know, why I like this idea of the, the papers coming out cuz maybe you'll get some cert vote data. Right. But but yeah, I think contemporaneously it might skew Fair it's enough. also just like I don't love the idea of potentially a lawyer seeing that and being like, "Okay, well, I really need to get Kavanaugh specifically on this case." They do so it I'm anyway. Only going to pay- they I'm we sorry? do it we we do they do that we anyway. Do it anyway. Yes, I know we do it anyway. But theoretically, there should be yeah. arguments that are offered that are for all nine justices and not just a single one. So I don't I don't know if I love how it would skew potential merits briefs or even amicus briefs, but especially amicus briefs. But I, I think that overall, it's it's learning it after the fact. I kind of like that better. Well, I'm glad we we disagree on one thing anyway because it's making interesting. <laughs> um, so we're running out of time. We're almost out of time. Uh, this issue has become less important, but 
it's still important to me. And that is the issue of, of, of cameras or live streaming the court visually. Mm-hmm. And the reason I am so wrapped, now that we have at least live audio, it's not quite as desperate a situation, but, sure. but it is because body language and, and, and flexion and how they talk to each other, how they deal with the litigants, and, and not just that. I'm, we're, taping this, we're taping this on a uh, Wednesday, you know, come out on Friday. And in about two weeks, I'm going to the National Federalist Society Convention, and I wrote a blog post Monday about why I'm agreeing to do that. And on my panel is a guy named Michael Carvin, who is one of the, what, top five conservative litigators in the United States, a bully, and I'm pretty sure not someone I want to have a cup of coffee with. Um, He treats the female justices differently than he treats the male justices. He always has. We've shown this. It's true. Um, People should see that, too. People should see not just the justices, but the litigators and the lawyers, and they'd find out that they're almost all white males. There are some exceptions. This whole thing should be public. <laughs> and, and, and audio isn't enough. Am I wrong about this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you are correct. Uh, obviously, cameras should be there. Cameras um, can be as unobtrusive as a wall-mounted clock. Cameras in other courtrooms like the closed circuit cameras that exist in the federal circuit and the D.C. circuit are embedded in the podiums and are, you know, this big. Right. I'm holding something that's basically the size of a silver dollar. Yeah. uh, For those of you listening. Um, And, and, you know, the idea that you can't hire like the judiciary doesn't have enough money to hire a producer to figure. No, like you can hire a law clerk to figure it out. It's not rocket science. Maybe the Supreme Court would need to hire someone full time just because it's that much important. But in in terms of the lower courts, because currently only the Second Circuit and well, the Ninth Circuit is the only one that does video all the time. The Second Circuit does it once a year. The Third Circuit does it a few times a year. The Eleventh Circuit did it a few times during. You can go to fixthecourt.com and see which circuit, whatever. But yes, cameras should be obviously in the Supreme Court. They're in the Supreme Courts of pretty much every single U.S. state, every single modern democracy. And there's been no real issues. This whole idea that it's going to lead to grandstanding and it's going to lead to 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 what sound bites, what Scalia called cutouts when he was asked this question by Brian Lamb of C-SPAN. Oh, it leads to all these cutouts. What do you think people who are being quoted, justices and attorneys who are being quoted in the newspaper? When they're in the newspaper, it's not the entire argument that's reproduced. It is a cutout. It is a soundbite. Same thing now with live audio or even audio at the end of the week. It is a sound. No one, you know, Nina Tonberg is not putting the entire 60 or 90 minute <laughs> argument on NPR. Right. It is just a soundbite. So that is always the way that news is reported. And that is always going to happen. And I think that, frankly, the justices and the attorneys who argue and I agree. Yes, there's definitely way too many people who look like us, but they would do well. The court acquits itself quite well in, in oral argument. There I agree. are agree. funny moments, light moments, yeah. moments where you see Justice Alito agreeing with Justice Sotomayor that you wouldn't in an opinion. Right. So to me, it's, you know, very uh, to me, it's, it's a generational thing. I've sort of conceded that it's not going to happen under the current makeup. I think you're going to have to I think the boomers are going to have to leave the court. So I think once Thomas Alito and Roberts are off the court, then I think we have a chance because then you'll have, you know, Gen Xers um, and younger folks, even some potentially millennials. So I think that once you get a generational turnover, we'll have a better shot. Sotomayor has had positive experiences with cameras. Kagan's had positive experiences with the cameras. Um, 
Barrett has had positive experiences with cameras. The first time that a camera was allowed in the Seventh Circuit, sorry, the Seventh Circuit also has allowed cameras like I think twice ever. But the first time it was an all female panel with Barrett, Amy St. Eve, and Diane Wood. And Diane Wood's very in favor of cameras. Um, it was awesome. It was really cool to see that, you know, and, and, and well, let me just the, let me the just three say them together about the Seventh Circuit. Sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah. There was and a time we, when they, well, you're required to you're required to mention Dick Posner every single once, uh, once time. Once a time, and, and, and so I think that I set you up pretty well there did. by thank mentioning you. cameras and the Seventh Circuit in a sentence. So <laughs> thank you for that. The stage is yours, my friend. Because we're almost out of time, and I hadn't mentioned them yet. Uh, there was a moment in time when the Seventh Circuit said no, and he offered to pay out of his own money because they said it was a budgetary thing, and they still said no. It wasn't until he retired that they finally agreed to it. Um, one more thing about cameras. Um, one last question. So there are people. I, I, this debate I, we've had publicly, we had it at Georgia State in 2016 with a law professor uh, from Illinois who strongly opposed cameras. And there are still law professors, not many, but there are still some who oppose cameras. They're, they're hard to find, but they're out there. They're out there. What do you say to people who say cameras, to a large extent, have broken Congress, that that all we get from Congress now are members sitting up, standing up and doing speeches to empty rooms, and, 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 and TV did not do the American people as public service and basically, TV breaks everything that it covers, except for it's great for sports and everything else it breaks. Um, certainly, Fox News, in my opinion, has gone a long way in breaking our country. That's just my personal opinion. Um, but what do you say to people who say cameras break things? Well, I think specifically with a congressional example, it's it's a bit apples and oranges. Members of Congress are giving speeches that they can then either rehash or uh, splice up and use in a campaign ad, right? right? No one in the Supreme Court, th this is theoretically going to be either the last or the next to last. I mean, some justices go, you know, sit on lower courts by designation like Souter and, and O'Connor and, right. you know, about half the justices who retired do. But this is going to be pretty much their last job. They don't need to run for office. They have life tenure. And the speeches that members of Congress give in committee um, and give on the floor are a function of fundraising and trying to get on Fox News or MSNBC. You don't have that at the Supreme Court necessarily. I mean, there might be a justice here or there, but I think that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts runs a, a pretty tight ship when it comes to, you know, he's, I remember, I think he said, you know, there was some joking and I think he said, oh, you know, that's, that's enough levity for now. Let's move this along. Right. I mean, I think he's, he, he's, he's uh, runs, it runs a tight ship there. And, you know, I, I think that, one thing that Chief Justice O'Connor of Ohio, the retiring Ohio Supreme Court justice, said to me once was like, you know, we had someone who was grandstanding in our courtroom and I gave him a talking to and it's never happened since. Of course. You know, I think there's right. There's consequences. Right. I, I think that 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 they're that they're for, for attorneys, for the justices, maybe not uh, so much. But I think that they especially now have a real. Uh, need to show the legitimacy of their court. So being goofballs during a televised oral argument would achieve the opposite. So I think there's an a incentive to to act like uh, uh, professionals. That right. that incentive to act like professionals and, and humans with emotions and the ability to speak in terms that aren't insulting to the other side, Congress doesn't have that, right? It has the incentive to be of the polemicists uh, in the way that the justices don't have. That's a great answer. Um, and I kind of want to sum up. So your organization, again, is Fix the Court. People should support it. We, we've discussed so many issues just in this one hour. You know, we had one hour. We've discussed certain papers and recusal and ethics code and cameras. And there's a bunch of other things. We're not going to get to pace, sir. I'm sorry about that. But we'll I'll have okay. you back on at some point. But I do want to. Still I, not free. Still 10 cents a page. Working on that. Though. It's unbelievable that we have to pay for that. Um, 
Kennedy and Breyer were called to Congress, to, not called, they went to Congress to ask for money. Every year, two justices are picked. I don't know who picked, I guess the chief picks them, I assume, to go to Congress and testify why they need this budget and that budget. And a few years ago, with Kennedy and Breyer sitting there, the question of cameras came up. And I forget which congressperson did it. You probably know. But it was very adamant about, you know, this should be on TV. Mike, Mike Quigley of Illinois. Thank yeah. you. See, that's why you're great. Mike Quigley of Illinois. And Kennedy's answer to me reflects everything that is wrong with the Supreme Court of the United States. Or maybe it was Breyer's answer or maybe both of them. One of them said... And it takes somebody with life tenure who never can be fired and wields and possibly huge amounts of power for life to make this kind of statement. We can't do that because some of my colleagues might grandstand. And I was like, I was watching it live at the time, ironically, because it was Congress. I was watching it live thinking, and I actually was thinking about you too. I was thinking, what do you mean your colleagues will grandstand? Don't! <laughs> I mean, that's up to you. Am I overreacting to this moment? I mean, no, that that was that was insane. I remember watching it live as well. It was March of 2015, um, and actually, since then, they've only gone to Congress. That was the next to last time that they testified before Congress. Since then, we had Kagan and Alito in 2019, but in 2016, 17, 18, 20, 21, and 22, those meetings have happened behind closed doors in the Chief Justice's conference room. Wow. Um, much to my chagrin, I've been pushing yeah. Quigley, and the ranking member has changed. Now it's Steve Womack of Arkansas to make to drag two members of the Supreme Court before them every single year for them to grovel on their budget because that's what they should do, just like anyone else who gets taxpayer funding, especially this 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 coming fiscal year. They want like a 30% increase in their budget to care for the grounds, which is ridiculous. It's not even for security. It's like for hedges and shit. Anyway, <laughs> point is, um, so yeah, so that I remember he and Kennedy said, yeah, we don't want to allow this insidious dynamic to enter the courtroom. And yeah, yeah. so I, I, I don't think you're overreacting. He wasn't even talking about lawyers, a, though. He was talking about his co his colleagues, his colleagues. Yes, he was talking about his colleagues. <laughs> I don't know if he was talking about Scalia. Right. And because, you know, it was a very hot right. bench when Scalia right. was around. But, you know, it wasn't ever it was very rarely disrespectful. I mean, there were two or three times I can recall Scalia being disrespectful, but the guy was a justice for almost 30 years. Like, you know, it wasn't um, the majority of the utterances that came out of his mouth or any any other person's or any other justice's mouth. They all uh, uh, acted with decorum. And I don't think that would change. I mean, anyone that's argued in a camera in a courtroom with a camera before thinks about the cameras for like the first 30 seconds. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh shit, I have a job to do in about 20 minutes. Right. There's no time. That's the thing too, is that, you know, people are always like, okay, yeah, you're standing in line to go to the Supreme court. Cause there's no cameras. Okay. You got to get there at 5. AM. What do you do for the second day? I'm like, there is no second day. The Supreme Court <laughs> arguments are done in an hour, 90% of the time. Now they last a little more because of the seriatim and the live right. audio, whatever, because of the questioning format. So maybe it's 100 minutes instead of 60 minutes. But there is no time to be a goofball. There is no time to grandstand from the justices' perspective who are fighting for, for, for question time with, right. the other, with their colleagues or for the attorneys who have 20 or 30 minutes to make their argument. And if something happened to the extent that – there was someone speaking out of turn. There would be professional consequences for the attorneys or interprofessional consequences for the justices because Chief Justice Roberts would completely put them in their place and feel no shame about it. And I guess the ultimate answer is cameras have not broken the Supreme Courts of the UK, Brazil, yeah. 
dozens of other countries, pretty much all 50 states. Um, I can think of an argument where in a high-profile criminal case, we can have arguments about secrecy and privacy and security, but not... Erwin Chemerinsky always said, if 250 Americans are allowed in to watch, which they are, and mm-hmm. C-SPAN is willing to televise at C-SPAN's expense, not even the court's expense, which they are, right. then under what possible thinking can we close this off to the rest of the American citizenry? It's not a private yeah. hearing. It's a public hearing, right? <sighs> Unbelievable. Well, you know, I think we need – yeah, I think it's going to take unanimity from the justices and we're not going to get it yeah. okay. with, with boomers on the court. I Gabe, don't, I, I, don't see I really appreciate, as you know, all the work that you do. Once again, his organization has fixed the court. Please support it. Um, it is doing incredibly important work to make what I think the least transparent branch of government just a little bit more transparent one step at a time. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, this is, a, this is a great therapy session for me. I was able to get out some of my angst towards the justices, towards members of Congress that don't feel like using power of the purse. I mean, I don't know if this is going to like be put on a website or anything, but I feel like I got, I got, I got my money's worth from, from, from Dr. Siegel sitting on my couch here. So uh, well, was, I really appreciate that. It was great having you. It will be available on, uh, it'll be available on this Friday. This is Wednesday. Um, and you'll be happy to know that somehow I built up a decent audience. So there will be a fair number of people who saw this there, who listened to this therapy session. So um, thanks. Amazing. Ag- thanks again. Thanks, Eric.